IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to IB Talk, the insurance industry's global podcast. So here we are with more than a year having passed since the onset of the global pandemic. And how are you coping? If you're one of our listeners in New Zealand or Australia, chances are you've already resumed some relative normality and maybe you're making regular trips to the office. But elsewhere in the world, including in North America and the UK, we're still firmly entrenched in that remote work environment. And it's fair to say that some of us have just about hit the point where the gloss and the newness of it all has rubbed off. And now we're just chomping at that bit, waiting for some normality to return. So how do you keep yourself motivated in the work from home environment? And indeed, if you're at the top of an insurance company, underwriting agency or brokerage, how do you keep your staff happy? Today, I'm delighted to welcome to IB Talk a man who is here to inspire us all and show us that there's still life in those virtual meetings. He is an author, a man with more than 30 years in consulting, more than two decades under his belt at Accenture, and is now a senior advisor at Pivotal Consulting, Kevin Single. Uh, Kevin, welcome to IB Talk. Thank you. It's really lovely to be here. Appreciate the opportunity to share some enthusiasm for remote work and help people uh, adjust and adapt in the kind of long-term ways that most of us need to. By the way, I have to say I'm a little bit jealous of some of our colleagues in Australia and New Zealand who are living a much more normal life. Yeah, well, Kevin, let's let's kick things off by talking a little bit about your career so we can understand why you are um, the guru on this topic. Um, it's because, like we said, you've had a good 30 years under your belt across consulting, but you've also led teams of up to 2,000 people. Um, tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, the key thing for this conversation about the larger teams that I led, including, including the ones that were around 2,000 people, is that they were distributed around the world, and many of them were working from home on a routine basis, just as we're all forced to do now. So, for example, let me think about the timing. In 2002, I was working with a team that was sprinkled across 14 countries in um, Western and Central Europe, and a number of the people that I was working uh, directly with or indirectly with, within the extended team, of course, um, were working from home most of the time if they weren't um, going to a client site, which was something that most of them did something less than half time was at a client site. So I very quickly had to learn how to engage and motivate people in that environment um, across cultures, of course, as you can imagine, in all those different countries but um, remotely because it is obviously impractical for me to be spending my time at 14 different countries on a weekly or monthly basis. So I absolutely had to figure out how to connect and engage with people in that environment. It was just as forced on me, you might say, as many of us have seen over the last year. And I, I think it was a fascinating journey and a very rewarding one. Yeah, well, tell us a little bit about that, Kevin, because like, like we said, 2,000 does seem like a, a huge number. And, and like you said, you can't be in all of the offices. And, and I assume, you know, when you've got sort of a, a staff or a team that that's that size, I mean, you can't at the same time spend 30 minutes with each of them every week. I mean, that would simply be, you know, to take all of your time. Um, so how do you cope with that? Yeah, well, a, a team that large, of course, you can't establish personal relationships with every individual, right? You might be able to do that with a couple of hundred people, but you can't do it realistically with a couple of thousand. So you've got to be wise about how you become a real person 
to each individual. And um, you do that, I think, in two ways. One is by having those half an hour personal conversations with a wide variety of key players in the organization so that they can carry your messages, your vision, and your enthusiasm for the work to the rest of the organization. And then it's a matter of having the virtual town halls, or when you can do it physically, of course, um, showing up in person from time to time to listen to folks in a group setting uh, so to talk about what's important in the work to help frame for them how compelling it is. One of the, one of the later teams that I worked with was doing customer service. Um, so, you know, you think call center and order taking, except what they were doing was taking orders for implantable surgical devices that were going to save people's lives. And when I started working with that team, I realized that, frankly, the team had a pretty bad morale. Uh, I didn't get to spend time with them in person, but you could tell it even virtually. And um, so for me, the reframing there was from uh, order taking to life saving. And they're getting calls from doctors and nurses later in the work day to place orders for things that needed to be shipped to them the very next morning. And the team, frankly, had kind of a bad attitude about, you know, all these people are placing orders at the very last minute and expecting it the next morning at their at their uh, medical facility. And, um, you know, why don't they just call us earlier in the day so we have time to get these complex orders placed? And we had whole conversations about what the work really was, which was getting life-saving equipment into the hands of these medical professionals to save people's lives who would otherwise probably die of a cardiac event within a matter of days in some cases. And when I left that team, um, we had kind of a goodbye conversation, and I said something about the quality of the work. And I have to tell you, I was choked up by how passionate they were about it and how they were telling me about how they were saving lives every day. Um, those are the kind of things that build connection remotely, is getting deep into the challenges of the work and honoring that, and also, helping people see the deeper meaning, right? We've probably all heard that story about the, the traveler who comes upon two men in a, in a rock quarry and he asks the first guy, what are you doing? And he says, well, can't you see? I'm, I'm trimming this rock to shape. And he asks the second guy and the second guy says, I'm building a cathedral. It's all about right. context. And you can establish context and value as a leader remotely really as well as you can in person if you make the effort to do so and you have the relationship with the leads and supervisors so that you understand the real issues the team's facing, what's important to them, and how to relate with them in a more genuine way. Yeah, that's great. And, and, and I think very, very applicable to the insurance industry because, you know, the, the insurance industry, is, as we're seeing right now um, at the time of our, our recording in Australia, for example, you know, picking mm -hmm. up the pieces after some, some, some huge flooding. And, you know, while it's not necessarily life-saving, they are obviously, you know, helping people through an incredibly traumatic time. And, and, and perception, um, you know, is, is, is a huge part of, of, of the job and sort of how you, how you pitch it and, and present it. Is that, is that what, what you would say to, yes. to insurance? professionals as well absolutely absolutely an excellent example insurance professionals just like medical professionals are dealing with individuals in crisis and your empathy and care for them is what maintains the relationship with those clients 
helping as a leader in the industry, helping your staff stay centered on the fact that they're not just gathering data and filling out forms so somebody gets their check, but they're helping our clients get recentered and back into their life in a way that allows them to focus on the priorities of their own careers and their families and things like that. It's about helping people reestablish what they intended their life to be like and rescuing them from a crisis. Um, it's not just the form you filled out or the, the six pieces of data that you had to gather that uh, eventually get them the, the payment that they, they are due or something like that, right? It's, it's much deeper than that. So yeah, it absolutely applies. And as a leader, um, you have to find ways to build that understanding together of what's possible. And I think that starts from trust and candor, right? So um, before the crisis, when somebody on your team is feeling overwhelmed, you need to be investing in that relationship which if you're able to work with them one-on-one, -on -one, unlike my 2,000-person situation, um, if you're able to work with them one-on-one -on -one or in small teams, it's probably easier to build that trust and candor. Part of that comes from your own vulnerability. So being genuine about the challenges you face with the work and the ways that you navigate through them in some cases, but um, making space for people to talk about what their challenges are what they value about the work that they're doing intrinsically um, gives you more space to understand what their needs are as working professionals with you. And then therefore in a crisis, you're more able to relate and connect the challenge they're facing in that moment, like in the case of a flood, right? With, um, with what's important to them to help them stay centered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great advice. So let, let's focus in on that sort of remote working environment then, and, mm. and tell us what are what are some of the sort of the signs, I guess, that we should uh, look out for that might indicate that somebody is struggling uh, at home. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of sides to this. One side of it is the productivity side of things, right? So being um, able to kind of monitor whether they're getting the work done that's necessary. Um, is a baseline concern, of course. So there's a, a matter of timeliness and responsiveness um, that can, of course, drift into trying to spot attrition risks and write somebody's ship before they sink themselves. Um, one of the things that stands out here is looking for market differences in the way your staff are interacting with you and your clients. Um, are there changes in their demeanor? changes even in their dress you know if you're doing video conferencing um, with your team members and they in turn with their clients probably then um, appearance is important and if you see changes there that can be a real warning flag that they are drifting off of their professional center if you will mm -hmm. um, another one that stands out very dramatically is a lack of responsiveness when we're all working remotely if somebody is um, losing their sense of engagement with the work, one of the things that will stand out is that they're not responding in a timely fashion to their colleagues or to you as the leader um, when there's relatively simple business interactions going on. If you see that lack of responsiveness, I would suggest that that is a warning sign that their productivity may be crumbling, but even more than that, that they may be in attrition risk. And definitely worth zooming in, if you will, on that person and their relationship. 
You may also see them coasting through meetings without really engaging um, and acting just sort of passively in general, right? Um, the one thing I would highlight as a difference here, though, is if you see a drop in productivity, which is what I started out talking about, don't assume that means you've got an attrition risk. Mm -hmm. Zoom in and find out why. Find out what's going on. Because, of course, it could be a very human factor, like... Uh, you know, their kid's school got shut down because of a COVID outbreak at the school, and they're now juggling two children in the next room, and it really is affecting their productivity. But you might want to work with them on delegation of tasks and better collaboration to sort of rescue them from their productivity trap, rather than assuming that they're at immediate attrition risk, right? On the other hand, though, you will see people whose productivity is dropping and one of the things that I've noticed with, with clients that we've been coaching at Pivotal Consulting, Inc., is people who realize they don't like the work as much as they thought they did. What they liked was the team and the routine of going to the office. And um, when those uh, factors get peeled away, they come to realize that this really isn't the job for them. And honestly, as a leader, if that's what the case is, then the best thing you can do is help the person leave. You know, I love you too much to keep you in this torture chamber, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> well, well let, let's let's talk about sort of that, that producti productivity ish issue, if you want, um, because yeah. like, like you said, I mean, some people work very well at home. Others don't. And and, and like right. you said, in, in some cases, that be, can be because we've got distractions. Maybe we've got a lot of family at home, et cetera. Um, in some cases, it can just simply be a case that we're, we're not as motivated when the boss isn't in the room. Um, how do we kind of get to the bottom and, and, and truly understand, you know, whether there are um, external factors that are perhaps influencing somebody's performance or, or whether it really is just about them being a little bit lazy? Yeah. So part of that is just slowing down and talking with them, right? We get back to the trust and candor theme that, that we, were, we were on earlier. Um, having enough relationship in place, ideally before these problems show up, but certainly working on it now, since you're hearing this conversation now, uh, so that when the crisis occurs, you're able to slow down and zoom in and listen to the person um, as they share with you what's going on. Uh, a certain amount of candor on your part means saying, I'm concerned about your productivity. I'm concerned about your motivation. Let's work through that together so that they feel that you're with them on it. Sometimes it's simple stuff like, you know, the kids are at home for the next two weeks on quarantine. And it's just something that has to be transitioned through and worked through. Other times it can be challenges that they're facing um, related to their work environment or um, other issues around how they're managing their time, how they're eliminating the distractions. And it can be a matter of coaching somebody through some of that. And of course, if you struggle with that yourselves, it may be a matter of you know turning to some of your colleagues, your own mentors, or um, an executive coach, which is, of course, the kind of thing we do at Pivotal quite a bit, um, to guide people through thinking that through. So some of the things that we will often suggest to individuals are to set up a process where you track some of your personal wins and accomplishments in each workday. It's sort of like the gratitude journal concept, where you, you're just taking notes on what you are able to get done every day so that you realize you are making some progress. Other simple things like um, including stretch breaks in meetings, you know, one of the realities of our virtual environment is if you stand up and move two feet away from the camera, you're quote unquote gone, 
Whereas in a conference room, if you've been sitting there for two hours and you need to get up and stretch, frankly, you can do that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so focus on um, the human side of the experience of working virtually can mean uh, telling people, hey, let's take five to get a coffee and stretch and come back together instead of grinding through the meeting where everybody's sitting in their chair the whole time, staring at the screen the whole time. And then highlight that that same kind of behavior is something people can integrate into their personal work time as well. I, I think, you know, obviously we're sort of looking at things a little bit from, from, from the employer perspective. Um, right. But I, I'd love to get your perspective from, from the employee side of things as well, because, you know, maybe you're in that environment where you're working from home and you're conscious yourself that mm -hmm. you're um, having some you know, struggles here or maybe that you're, uh, you know, you're, whether you've got a lot of outside distractions or, or, or maybe you're just struggling for motivation or whatever. I mean, how, how can you kind of address those issues as an individual? Because let's be honest, some people don't really want to go and have that conversation with the boss and say that I'm struggling, even if in theory, yes. that's what they should do. Right. Absolutely. No, that's a very fair point. That kind of vulnerability is a lot to ask of an individual, uh, regardless of what level they're at. Um, so one of the things I'd suggest is that you look at your workspace and look at what you can do to eliminate distractions, um, which can be as simple as, you know, turning your desk to face the wall so you're not looking at the pile of dirty dishes on the other side of the kitchen because you, you don't have a a room of your own, if you will, for an office and you're stuck in the corner of the kitchen, fine, but at least at least think about what's in your visual world so that you can you can clean out some of those distractions. Another thing that can help a lot is before and after work transitions. When we had to go into the office, it's sort of a given that we probably, you know, showered, maybe shaved if we're a guy or did our makeup if we were a woman. We we did our hair for the day, we picked out an outfit and we went through the ritual of getting from home to work. All of those things get you in the game. So what can you do to create that when you're working from home? Well, you know, if you have a dog, maybe you take the dog for a walk for 15 minutes every day, and that's sort of your commute, if you will, in quotes, right? But think about what rituals are you going to have? When I was working from home for years and years straight, um, I would still shave and shower and have a proper breakfast and sit down at my desk as if I had gone to work. Even if, honestly, because of the people across time zones, I was starting work at an obscenely early hour, which was common, I would still include the time to do those things because the ritual put me into the game, right? So I was ready to work. Similarly, at the end of the day, we encourage people to have a transition. For a lot of folks that were commuting back and forth to an office, uh, you know, maybe you're on the train with your headphones blasting some music you enjoy or you're listening to the news on the radio and, and getting your head out of the workplace on the way home one way or another, right? So what would you do to do the same thing when it's 10 feet from your workspace to home, as it were? Well, um, some of the things that have worked really well are five-minute meditation sessions, and there are, there are apps for your smartphone that will take you through simple guided meditations to help you make that transition. Um, you could do the same kind of stretch breaks or a dog walk. Um, leaving the house for a few minutes, if you've been working at home all day, even if the weather's terrible, can be surprisingly recentering and refreshing. So that you, when you walk back in the door to home, the people that you're with or the quiet space that you're seeking are there for you rather than it feeling like you're still at work. Another magic trick that I just love if you're working on a laptop every day, as so many of us are that are working from home, is to put it away just like if you were 
at the office and you decided you needed to take your laptop home for the day. You'd turn it off, you'd pack it up, you'd put it in a bag and you'd take it home with you and you'd plop it in the corner when you walked in and maybe you'd take it out later that night if you actually needed to and maybe you wouldn't. When we work from home, there's a tendency to leave the darn thing on all the time. Don't do that. When your day is over, turn off the computer because the ritual of doing it will help you be done at work and avoid the temptation of being back online. One of the mistakes I made at one point was leaving my computer on 24-7 and um, plopping down after the kids were put to bed in the evening. So it's, you know, maybe say nine in the evening and the house has gotten quiet and there's things on my mind about work. So I plop down and I'm back at it working away. And I had one of my staff say, boy, it seems like you are online all the time. Well, yeah, I'm the I'm the, you know, hardworking leader that I am. No, wrong answer. You're modeling the wrong behavior for yourself, but also for your staff. And this is another thing I will say about how you interact with other people in this work from home environment where there's no boundaries. Create them yourself. So if you happen to be on um, your computer working, let's say, on a, on a day off, you know, on the weekend or whatnot, um, think about rather than sending out all of your emails as you write them, leaving them in your draft folder until normal working hours come again, and then send them all off. Once they're in the draft folder, they're out of your brain and you're not worried about them. But if you send them during those off times, it gives other people in the impression that you are working 24-7, which frankly sets a bad expectation for that you'll always be available to them that way. But it also tends to set an expectation culturally that this is what we do is basically be on 24-7. And that is not a culture you want to create. It's unhealthy. It limits productivity. It limits creativity. And so it's very wise to be intentional, especially as a leader. But really, in any position, I mean, who's not a leader? Let's be honest, right? Every one of us influences the culture of the team that we're part of. Every one of us sets an example that other people look to, even if it's informally. So be purposeful about when it's visible that you are on, even if you feel compelled to do something at off hours. Yeah, that's terrific advice, I think. And uh, one thing I'm also very conscious of as well is, is, you know, within the sort of the makeup of a team, if you want, there are different individuals, some who might be very you know, typically extroverted, others who may be very introverted. And and when, you know, as a, as, a, as an employer or as a leader, we are arranging some of these um, events. So for example, there's you know, virtual parties and things like that, that people are trying to do to kind of create that team morale. And it's all very well intentioned, but maybe there are some people um, who are you know, naturally more introverted who are a little bit uncomfortable with things like that um, yes how, how do you think that I mean how do you think in general that those sort of things those virtual parties and so on are, are working do you think they've been successful and and are there any ways that we can sort of engage the people who you know for them it's just not the sort of thing it's not the thing they want to do yeah it's a tough question because in a in a more physical environment the people who are more introverted might end up sort of off in the corner chatting with a couple of folks or they might show up late and leave early so maybe it's okay to to include that behavior as acceptable in a virtual event try to create virtual events that don't have a crisp start time that everybody feels they have to be at and a crisp finish time that everybody feels they have to stay until the virtual happy hour or even the the physical happy hour, the physical lunch together is a little bit more flexible than that, right? If somebody got up 
partway through lunch and said, you know, this has been fun, but I really need to get back to the office, or I've got an errand to run on the way back to the office, so I need to bolt at this point, we'd all kind of smile and wish them well and be okay with it. So take the same attitude of flexibility into our virtual events. Uh, the other thing you can do to make the virtual events a little bit more special is to provide in the same way that you would at a physical one. So if you bought the team lunch before, find a way to do that now. Find a foods, food delivery service that can you know, take people's orders and um, provide physical lunch for the virtual lunch meeting. Or even for a happy hour, if it's culturally appropriate, um, provide a way for folks to get you know, a glass of wine or, or something like that delivered to them so that the the happy hour or the you know let's say the high tea with scones and scones and tea might be more culturally appropriate in more places actually can't always provide alcohol but um cater right provide uh vouchers so that people can um you know get a starbucks for a meeting and um the the little signals even though it may be you know a very modest amount of money um it reminds people that you care and you are trying to cope with the situation we are all in. It signals in a really positive way that you're being creative about how you deal with this virtual world that we're in. And that will that modeling will encourage the same kind of thing for other people as, as what we see. Yeah, I, I, I've heard some some great stories, in fact, from from some of the insurance companies, you know, sending uh, donuts and things like this to, yes. to the staff. And, and yeah, are there any um, sort of outside the box ideas uh, that you've heard about that you thought were particularly great that are, you know, oh. maybe? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of them that caters to the introverts, by the way, is to organize smaller group meetings. So let's say a max of six or eight people. And then to do some slightly goofy things as part of those meetings. You know, we talked about a stretch break before, but what about a dance party? What about picking a popular song? I know this sounds goofy, but remember, everybody's in their own private space here. So, you know, you play a song for, for four or five minutes, and everybody gets up out of their chair that they've been stuck in all day in front of the computer and dances. Nobody's watching you. You're not doing it in front of the camera. We're just going to all get up and dance. Right. Um, I, I've seen people um, also do really simple exercise things like, uh, you know, two minutes of chair yoga. So we're going to stay in our chairs, but we're going to do some twists and stretches and things like that. Um, another really goofy thing is to find a couple of really pretty pictures online, um, you know, national parks or, you know, animals or waterfalls and have um, a visual break during the meeting. So we're going to stop and we're just going to look at these pictures of these foxes playing with their children in a field. And um, there's nothing more to it than that. There's no agenda for that part. It's just we're just going to pause and, and admire how gorgeous these animals are for a minute. Watch yeah. a short video of some wild horses running across a field or something. You know, um, It is a little goofy at the one hand, but at the other hand, it's often exactly what people need to just have that little brain break. Um, I'm so glad you said yeah. that the cameras would be off during the dancing. Um, oh, heavens yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Nobody so, really so, wants to see me dance, but I'll tell you, it is fun. And knowing that the rest of your team is doing it, honestly, even if one or two of them are grumpy gusses and don't do it, you don't know that. Knowing that they're doing it too does make it more fun in a strange way. Okay. Well, Kevin, before we um, wrap things up, I, I just want to talk or talk about one of your hobbies, in fact, and, and, and indeed one that you've written books on, I believe, and that's yes. gold prospecting. Um, for the uninitiated, tell us what that is. 
Well, it's it's almost exactly what you imagined it is. Just like in the days of a gold rush, it's a matter of finding a waterway that has uh, historically had gold in it and getting out a gold pan or, or other equipment along those lines and uh, digging up some of the sand and gravel in the, in the riverbed and uh, panning it, processing it right there to see if you can find some gold. And I've been quite successful with it myself. I've actually made several rings, um, one that uh, my wife wears all the time now as a wedding band, um, in fact, is made from gold for my 2013 prospecting season. So it was the thing that I did for therapy. I was working from home full time in those days and stuck in the office all day was stuck in the home office. So my ritual at the end of my work day was to go down to the creek, uh, really only a couple miles from my home. I'm lucky enough to live in gold country in Colorado and uh, just dig for an hour. And it's just silence in the creek, nobody to bother me, no telephones, no computers. And uh, lucky enough for me, over the course of that 2013 year, I gathered enough gold that I was able to uh, work with a goldsmith and get a ring made for my wife, which I'm proud to say she wears every day. So it's been a lot of fun. And as you said, yes, I, I did end up writing uh, a book about it to help other Colorado prospectors. The book's called Finding Gold in Colorado, which is not a very creative name, but it tells the story of the gold rush of Colorado and where some of the places are you can you can play tourist and play prospector for real. So it's been a lot of fun. I've sold, I think, a little bit over 4,000 books so far and um, just has connected me with the whole community of other prospectors, as you can imagine, including people who plan visits. I've had people from Sweden and China at opposite extremes around the globe um, buy a copy of my book and come to Colorado to have the adventure that they dreamed of. So it's been a lot of fun to to inspire people that way as well. Yeah, I was going to ask if you've struck it rich, but it sounds like your wife has instead. Um... Yeah, a little bit. I did, I did make a ring for myself and, in fact, helped my daughter. This is kind of romantic. My daughter's recently married, and exactly a year to the day before her wedding date, um, I took her out to a gold-bearing creek, and we dug gold for a ring for her intended. So her husband, my son-in-law, now wears a wedding band that includes gold that my daughter and I dug. Excellent. Yeah, what a, what a, what a great story that is. And, and, and Kevin, it's, it's, it's been great to, to have you join us. If anybody wants to get some more tips from you, whether it's about remote work or searching for gold, um, how can they reach out? Um, the simplest way is email. Um, I, my entire consulting business these days is done through uh, findinggoldincolorado at gmail.com. Uh, some of that's literal gold and some of it's the metaphorical gold of being a consultant, I suppose you'd say. But that's a good way to start. Excellent. Well, thank you, Kevin. I'm, I'm sure there will be uh, many people reaching out. And, and we, of course, will be reaching out to you, our listeners, again in one week's time on the next IB Talk. Uh, take care, everyone. Cheers. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.